Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, founder and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. In July of this year, Lindsay Johnson took over the helm of the Consumer Bankers Association, replacing Richard Hunt, who had guided the organization for the previous 13 years. This is an important time for the CBA as economic uncertainty, new legislative initiatives, the introduction of modern technologies, and a redefined structure of financial services ecosystem are emerging. The challenges and opportunities are truly enormous. We are fortunate to have Lindsay Johnson, President and CEO of the Consumer Bank Association, on today's podcast. In this episode, Johnson provides your perspectives for the future of retail banking and the role of the CBA in this future. So, Lindsay, while you're relatively new to the CBA, you're not new to the role of advocating for financial institutions, having more recently held the position of president of U.S. Mortgage Insurers. How have your previous roles in and out of banking prepared you for your new role at the CBA? Well, Jim, thank you for having me on your show. I was excited to be here. Um, look, I mean, I'm someone who has a background at the crossroads of business and policy, and I've had that kind of that been at that intersection for a very long time. Uh, you know, so whether it was being at the Federal Home Bank during the financial crisis and getting a, a close look, maybe too close at a look at times at all that could go wrong and did go wrong, uh, being in the Senate focused exclusively on banking policy at that time being at PwC and really focused on the on the uh, private enterprise side of things, really focused on banking policy and, and our financial services clients then as well. And then running a trade association where you've got the ability to really have a full understanding and a full appreciation of how uh, the banking and financial system has evolved, where the pain points continue to be, and how to actually effectuate change here in DC to help our members do what they do best. So it's interesting. The CBA has its mission, and it's well spelled out, and it can be easily found just doing a Google search. But really, the organizations as an advocate for the financial institutions and for the customers of financial institutions really takes on a different personality, I would say, and, and different things tend to get more important, less important over time. So how do you see the role of the CBA and really as of you as their leader changing or how do you see it really taking place right now during this time of really unprecedented change? Well, let me kind of start with something that won't change. I mean, I have long known and respected CBA as the voice for America's retail lending banks here in D.C. And so no doubt, you know, CBA will continue to be the leader on all things consumer retail here in D.C. But there's also no question that the industry is rapidly evolving. It's you know driven primarily by the digitization of banking, the growth of fintech, big tech firms in our space, the introduction of digital assets, just to name a few. Uh, and policymakers and in, in here in DC are really struggling to keep up with uh, with some of these different dynamics. They weigh the risks and the rewards of these new technologies for consumers. And so, fortunately, CBA sits in this this sweet spot. We can continue to serve as a leading advocate for retail banks. We can ensure that our members' priorities are being conveyed whether that's on Capitol Hill or, or uh, at the regulatory agencies. But we also play this very critical role of being at that intersection between the issues and challenges in front of consumers, in front of business, in front of society, frankly, and what needs to happen on the legislative and the regulatory front to help our members be part of that solution. And a great example of that work was actually on display, full display, uh, as our members work through the pandemic. 
And you saw, you know, the rollout of PPP. Yep. CBA led on the PPP forgiveness, which was highly successful. And so we, you know, we look forward to continuing to play that role. So whether it's on emerging issues like, uh, you know, working on elder abuse or, or fraud prevention, return to work issues, or really navigating the policy environment to best position our members, because we know right now consumers, small businesses are facing some pretty big headwinds uh, as they look forward and thinking about what's ahead in the economy. And so our members are in a good position to help lead them through that next economic cycle. CBA plays that role of really kind of facilitating that conversation between the regulatory world and our members to make sure that they can do that. You know, on that point, what do you see as the biggest challenges facing retail banking today? I see three big challenges. First, a significant issue the industry is facing is that banks continue to play in a in a uh, one of the most highly regulated environments of any industry that exists. And it is the most uh, unlevel regulatory arenas out there. Specifically, banks are going against a number of other players in the marketplace that simply just don't have the same capital oversight standards, consumer and data privacy requirements that banks have. And, you know, I think that there was some, some good reasoning for that, possibly in the beginning, where you would see regulators and policymakers say, well, look, you've got fintechs in the marketplace, they're innovating, they're coming up with new products. But now some of these same fintechs, especially for instance, in the unsecured personal loan market, they're nearly 60% of the market. And they're offering the same products as banks. They're often bigger than many of the banks, not CBA members, but they're bigger than many of the other banks right. in the country. And so they should they should have that same kind of regulatory uh, oversight. And so we really, we actually think we've got alignment with CFPB. We think we've got alignment with policymakers who now recognize that it is unlevel and that you want to make sure that consumers have that same protection. Fraud is the second issue, and I, I'm happy to expound on that, yeah. but you know, it's not just in banking. We see it at government, we see it at big tech. It is a huge issue. And so as especially as we've all been propelled through this digitization and through you know digital banking, you see more of it. And we see it on the consumer side, we see it on the small business side. Uh, P2P is a conversation right now. Unfortunately, you know, policymakers keep using Zelle as the example. Truth be told, you know, uh, Venmo has three times the fraud that, that Zelle does. Cash App has six times the fraud that, that uh, Zelle does. But Zelle is the poster child. And what I'm, I'm proud of is that the CEOs of our banks don't say, well, we're better than they are. Our CEOs are really focused on and our banks are really focused on fixing the, the fraud that does exist. Uh, and the challenge right now is that it's consumers, right? It's a consumer who is being defrauded. This, the fraudsters are getting very sophisticated. They're reaching out to, the, out to the consumer and scamming them. And then there's this whole question about should the banks be liable for that? 99.9% uh, .9 of all transactions that occur through Zelle have no disputed transactions. But again, our banks are working on fixing the issues that do exist. We think that government's got a role to play here. We think FBI and FTC need to need to really pick things up and need to have the resources so they can go after these, these transactions, these fraudulent scammers. Uh, we think that telecom has a role to play. They've got to stop, you know, the ability for these scammers to have Wells Fargo or, you know, any other bank in the country. You, if you see that pop up, the consumer is automatically off guard. Uh, so it's there are just a lot of other industries that need to step up. Right now, it's almost exclusively banks that are really focused in this space. But that's a huge issue. And then the third issue I would just say is this polarization in D.C. 
where banks continue to be put in a very difficult position over every single issues. I mean, banks are now in a position of strength. You know, they continue to meet the yep. demands of their consumers, their investors, their policymakers. And so we really want to have this conversation about, you know, we're, we're 15 years after the financial crisis. Banks are in a great position. They've led through the pandemic. You know, let's flip the page on this and let's really focus on issues that banks can help solve. You know, it's interesting. We we tend to as an industry, and I've been in this industry since the dawning of the dinosaurs almost, but we <laughs> we continue to default to greater regulation. We talk about having greater regulation for fintech organizations. Um, as you mentioned, a lot of Washington wants to have greater regulations with banks. Are we possibly looking at it from the long, wrong perspective? And should we be looking at potentially loosening some regulations or readjusting regulations to try to level the playing field? Because I look at innovation and all the things that we're trying to achieve and I sometimes see that the regulations in place have not kept pace. And as a result, we're having to work with different con constraints. And instead of asking for greater regulation of fintechs, should we be maybe looking at looser regulations or less stringent regulations for legacy banks? So I, I think it's more, you know, this question about, uh, yeah, so yes, bottom line, yes. I mean, there absolutely are regulations that are duplicative, that make no sense. You've got different agencies requiring different things that can, of banks that really at times are at odds with each other. You've got, I think it's this bigger question about, you know, are to your point, are the regulators able to keep up with what's happened? I mean, when Dodd-Frank was passed, there, you know, there was no fintech, right? There was no real discussion about what fintechs were providing in the market when Dodd-Frank was passed. And so I think that this inability for, uh, for regulation to keep pace is the question that we need to all be asking ourselves. Again, you know, think about when the, the iPhone was unveiled 15 years ago, you know, we're trying to get our heads around, okay, now everybody's doing uh, banking on their iPhone. What does that mean? How do you capture that? How do you ensure that that's part of the CRA considerations, for example? And so we're really thinking about, you know, how do we have this opportunity in front of us to Talk about the latest change, the latest trends in banking. Talk about what the future of banking may look like today and how regulations need to adapt to how consumers are doing their, their banking. Um, so I think the question is ripe. And I think that that's where we want to kind of carry the conversation with regulators is, you know, you've got to make sure that there's a level playing field. I don't see regulators backing off of regulation, unfortunately, uh, for banks. So I think what we have to see is some kind of leveling with the fintechs and other data providers to have the same security, same consumer protections that banks have. And then I think that we need to have this conversation about let's not, you know, throw the baby out with bathwater. You can't do the same thing that you've done, you know, over here in banking to this digital uh, banking space. You've got to make sure that banks have the ability to meet consumers where they are. And so some of your conversation about you know, whether it's CRA and how we're investing in communities, how we're really meeting consumers' needs, that's evolved and banks have had to evolve with it. And so the regulation needs to recognize that. And I think that's the conversation that, that has to happen. You know, it's, it's challenging because I often say in events that I speak into that the, unfortunately, a lot of the regulators are the oldest bankers in the business. They're, they're the ones that have gone through all the iterations. They've gone in the banking and they've been an executive at a financial institution and they tend to be the most legacy of legacy bankers. And that that actually can hamper innovation. 
And I'm, I'm, I'm saying, you know, at the end of the day, when you're representing both the consumers and the financial institutions, consumers tend to be the ones who lose as we put more and more constraints on financial institutions often, not always. Many times it's for their protection, but sometimes we actually stifle innovation. So as we look at bank, traditional banks and fintech firms, how do you actually see these two types of organizations working together in the future? Well, look, I mean, many banks already partner with fintechs to provide that technology and that infrastructure on certain products and services, and especially smaller banks who lack the size and the scale to develop their own technology in-house. What's interesting uh, is this, you know, everyone was propelled uh, in this space and to become more digital through the, the pandemic. And you see a lot of the bigger firms, you know, JP Morgan, for example, many of them spending tens of billions of dollars every single year on technology to keep up with sort of the future of banking. Uh, JPX has just spent 14 billion according to their latest earnings call. So it's this is a huge focus. And if you talk to bank leaders, you know, they even in their hiring practices, they previously were really focused on finance and on accounting folks. Now they're focused on data scientists and engineers. So this is the future of banking. And I think that it's so important just to remember that fintech innovation occurs within the banking system. And uh, if you're ready for this, I think one of the most interesting things I'm seeing is that not just, you know, the to me, I think it's not just the future of, of uh, banks buying fintechs, it's fintechs buying banks. And so this paradigm is shifting and we're going to see more of that, I would expect, because it's really hard to be in the consumer lending business. And as I mentioned, a lot of these fintechs are now bigger than banks. A lot of these fintechs, you know, if you're in the personal loan space, you're doing close to 60% of personal loans. It's difficult to be in this space. And what we've seen in this latest cycle, you know, you need liquidity. You need access to deposits. And so, again, we don't just see the banks buying the fintechs. We see SoFi, we see Lending Club. And I would expect others to kind of be on the horizon to buy banks. So in that same context, what is the CBA's position? If there, and I'm sure it's not a formal position, but in the whole concept of super apps, you know, be it a PayPal or an Apple or being a, a Chase or a Wells Fargo, how do you look at the integration of non-financial services within the traditional financial institution parameters? Yeah, I, I love this term super app. Um, this is like oh yeah, try, I didn't define it. Did you notice? Because you know it can be as big as what Alibaba is, or it can be as as streamlined as what some organizations have done with small business banking. It depends on how you define it. So I want to touch on two different issues. One is you know there's been there is uh, laws and regulations around banks getting into consumer uh, banks getting into um, into commercial business. There is not really the reverse, right? And so we've been really shining this light on, okay, what does it mean for Facebook, for Apple, for some of the big tech firms to get into this space? What does that mean? They've got a lot of market power and suddenly, you know, they can have these super apps and these other abilities to to control, to access consumers' data, financial information like never before. And so we're really focused on that. I know from the regulatory perspective, Again, we've got alignment there because regulators are seeing it and they're seeing the impact of it. But I think that that's, it's not going to go away. And so folks are trying to get ahead of it and understand what does that mean. Um, and I think that you're going to see, again, sort of through this latest economic cycle, we've seen a lot of fintechs exit the market. But what we're seeing is more consolidation in this space. So the stronger fintech firms are eating up the smaller fintech firms. And I think you're going to see 
super fintechs, um, you're going to see these bigger uh, platforms and this ability to offer, you know, a number of different services. But I also see that within the banking space. And so as an example, I mean, if you think about what Erica does through Bank of America, you know, Erica not only will tell me, you know, how much money I've got in my account, my account number. I mean, the number of individuals, Brian Moynihan was just quoted recently to saying the number of individuals who uh, have access, not just their bank account number, but they'll ask the weather. Right. They ask, you know, Erica for any number of things. People are really coming to their bank more and more relying on these different services. And so I think the the future of that space and the super app is going to happen, you know, kind of simultaneously. It'll happen in the banking space. It'll happen in the, um, in the you know, uh, big tech space. But when it comes to access to the, to finances, to the ability to lend, to uh, having all this, you know, data for consumers, we've, we've got to have a little bit of a reckoning of, you know, let's make sure that everybody's playing by the same set of rules. Because at the end of the day, the consumer will lose if they're not. Yeah, and, and again, when you're taking into control into context the consumer and the large banks and the small banks and the reality of the marketplace it it, it becomes a it's a lot of ma- it's a matrix and it, and it's can be very yeah. involved you know on the same context of that you know super apps we also have talked about the importance of scale obviously you know chase has what seems to be at times an unbelievable amount of funding and in fact you know, there, Jamie Dimon got into a little bit of trouble when you talked about the money he was going to spend on on research and development from the shareholders saying, you know, why are you going to spend so much? And he realizes as much as anybody that we have to stay ahead of the curve as opposed to continually falling from behind or or trying to catch up. But we're, we're in a mode now that that a lot of financial institutions are, are going through mergers and acquisitions, trying to get scale. And, you know, they're not going to get the scale of a Chase or a Wells or a Bank of America. But what is the CBA's position on the benefits or challenges around mergers and acquisitions to gain scale and also to get a bigger geographic footing? So, you know, again, my mom was a community banker. I I get it. And I love the fact that we've got uh, the ability to choose from nearly 5,000 financial institutions to meet consumers' unique needs across the country. And, you know, as opposed to many other industries, as opposed to other countries, you know, the banking industry is so much less concentrated than other segments of the economy. So I think that will always be part of our banking system. It just will. What I think is also really important to to remember is that M&A provides banks with that necessary size and scale to compete with not just larger institutions, but with these fintech and with bigger tech firms, as you mentioned, and to make those investments to meet consumers' demands. And so that's not changing. That's going to continue. I think the regulatory pressure, uh, you know, the, the capital requirements and sort of, you know, what used to be the threshold of 50 billion, you know, became 250. Now it's 500. And, you know, I think that that just continues to escalate. And, it, and I was really uh, impressed with one of the responses that one of the CEOs had given recently during the CEO hearing before the Senate Banking Committee, either House or the Senate, but the question was, you know, do you think that you're more competitive today? And the question was actually going to uh, to Truist. Uh, do you think you're more competitive today with Bank of America than you were when you were BB&T or, or SunTrust? And of course, they're more competitive today. You know, that that is absolutely the uh, the correct answer. They, you know, they have the skill to actually offer consumers 
so many different offerings that the big banks are providing. I think it's it's going to be necessary. I do think that we're going to see some slowing of M&A activity. We already see a little bit of that. A lot of folks got in the hopper over the last year and a half. And so we're waiting on some of those transactions to occur. But, you know, I think that that is, um, that is going to be a trend that you continue to see because it's really difficult to meet some of the compliance and the regulatory and the capital requirements to be a bank. It just is. And to compete on, you know, on the same scale and with the same efficiencies, it's, it's, uh, I think you're going to see that trend continue. You know, it's interesting because it, you mentioned Truist is that it's not about the geographic footings anymore. It's the ability to take the savings from the consolidation and really redeploy them towards technology upgrades, innovation, things that were much differently, viewed much differently even five years ago than they are today. You know, it's, it's not about a land grab anymore. It's really about about ability to redeploy assets in, in new and innovative ways. You know, when we look at M&A, you know, we, because as I said, I, I go way back in banking. One of the things we always had to look at when we were doing a merger and acquisition was the CRA, um, Community Reinvestment Act. That hasn't changed. I mean, one of the dynamics of, of efficiencies is, is in times closing some offices that may be better deployed in other ways. And organizations realize that this is one of those regulations that you don't want to push it the wrong way or not meet the CRA guidelines because the slap on the wrist can be pretty hard. Um, what would you like to see changed and retained within the current regulations? Or or I should say within the way it's applied because it's really not exactly on, on paper. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of different things that we want to see um, change in the proposed rule that came out. Uh, and that we responded to is August 5th, our comment letter was filed with everyone else's. You know, look, I think CBA has been in a position for a really long time. We think CRA has got to be modernized. And a lot, you know, this this statute's been in place since the mid-1970s. It's not been updated since the mid-1990s. Banking as a whole has been, you know, largely um, transformed in the way that consumers access their banking. So, so much of that discussion needs to happen. And so we were very supportive of the effort to uh, to rewrite CRA. The one thing that has not changed, the statutory intent of CRA was wherever I'm making deposits, that's where I need to reinvest in my community. That's not changed. And the proposed rule that, that, that was released, they shift away from that model. And we've got some real concerns that it actually can have a negative impact on the, on the investments and our ability, our members' ability to invest in their communities the way that they need to. So we think there needs to be some flexibility uh, baked within the rule we, uh, to allow members to really understand the communities that they lend in and to take into uh, account you know, some of the ways that they're investing in those communities. We definitely think that there, and we have some real concerns about the, the approach generally about the rule. So now it's not the, where I'm getting my deposits, it's where I'm lending. And many of the different institutions, if you've got a really small footprint, but, but for strategic purposes, you're lending in a certain community. If I make 250 you know, home loans or 200 small business loans, I'm suddenly, I've got a new assessment area. And so I'm being graded in that community. And again, it's gonna have a really you know, meaningful impact in terms of my uh, decisioning about whether to continue that or not. And then the final thing is, well, there's two final things. <laughs> One is, every, you know this, Jim, banks pride themselves on getting an outstanding rating. They have entire teams dedicated to yep. CRA and CRA compliance. Yep. 
And they do, they move heaven and earth to make sure that they are in their communities, serving their community's needs. And under the proposed rule, it's almost impossible for banks to get an outstanding rating. We think that's wrong. I mean, you can grade on a curve, but you should not be able to, you shouldn't make it impossible for, for banks to get an outstanding rating. Right. They're, they're investing $500 billion annually in CRA. They're, you know, you, we, we, we want to make sure that that credit is still given and that banks understand how to get that rating. And then the final thing is, it's because it's so drastically different than what it's been in the past, banks are going to need time to implement it. So currently there's a, a one-year implementation timeline. We got to have 24 months. It's got to happen because there's just no ability for banks really to implement on that kind of time frame. So again, we, we fully support um, you know, revamping CRA and modernizing CRA, but we want to make sure that it doesn't have an, un- an unintended consequence right. that really kind of uh, impacts our ability, our members' ability to invest in our community. So let's take a short break here and recognize the sponsor of this podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. So welcome back to Banking Transform. I'm joined today by Lindsay Johnson, the new head of the CBA. You know, Lindsay, we've been discussing the, what the role of the CBA has been in the past and how it's transforming, much like the industry itself. But one of the areas of, of recent contention, I guess, is the role of the CFPB and the ability for an outside another outside organization to actually regulate and provide you know, stipulations on how a a bank can perform. What is the CBA's role or what is the CBA's position right now on the role that the CFPB should have and their authority in in leveling levying fines or any kind of regulations? Well, I think more broadly, uh, Jim, and thank you for this question. I think we've been very vocal about, you know, we need a strong CFPB. We need strong consumer protections. Our bank's operate within such a regulated and statutorily defined space. I mean, they want to understand the rules of the road so that they can actually uh, go out and do their businesses conforming to those rules. And so when something is outside of the uh, the statutory, uh, you know, conf- confinement, uh, the statutory, uh, you know, realm, if it's done outside of the regulatory APA process, that makes it very difficult for our members to do their jobs. And so one of the issues that we've, we've really had a, um, a lot of concern about is that in, CFP, in March, the CFPB revised its examination manual to reflect a new belief that unfairness and the unfairness prong of the UDEP, the un, uh, unfair, deceptive, and abusive acts practices definition could be applied to conduct that CFPB uh, deems discriminatory. And so these two definitions really are two very different concepts. Uh, the CFPB is, we've argued that the CFPB has exceeded its statutory authority as outlined under the Dodd-Frank Act by seeking to regulate discrimination under its UDAP authority because unfairness and discrimination are two distinct statutory concepts. And I know that this gets really legalese and very, you know, we're talking about rules and deep regulation, but it matters because our our members, uh, again, they're following the rule of the law. 
And, and it's incredibly important that when you when it comes down to the concepts and the definitions of unfair and of discrimination, there are two uh, very you know specific definitions for each of those things, and there are ways that they are regulated. And so our entities are trying to follow you know the um, the rules and the the regulations that exist today. And when CFPB goes through and they just change an exam manual and say now we're just going to examine you based on what we we believe is discrimination, it it is not the intent, the statutory intent of uh, of what CFPB is is supposed to be focused on, how they're supposed to define discrimination and unfairness, and how they're supposed to apply an exam manual. And so we've challenged this um, in court, as you mentioned, with several other financial trades. We think it's really important for there to be rule of law and for CFPB to operate within the confines that Congress set forth and that there's transparent uh, rules of the road for our members. And, you know, CFPB, we again, we believe that they've got a mission, um, the, an important mission, and our members are trying to adhere to uh, to the rules and to the regulations that are set forth, but it's got to be done in the right context using the right process. You know, it's a, it's a great point. And, and while I could, you know, fall asleep reading all the things that have gone on back and forth, <laughs> I think the reality of what I've seen from, and I'm going to speak on your behalf and you don't have to say yes or no to it because I don't want to get you in trouble. But I, I think what you're looking at is, you know, number one, the social environment has dictated a lot of changes that the financial institutions have already put in place. They have to respond to what's happening in the, the real world environment. And so they respond to many of these. In addition, financial institutions, probably better than almost any other industry, have really made headway at, at making sure that they apply, they they go along the, the concept of what is meant by and what was what the roles of the CFPB was. And, and I think what we're trying to avoid is, is and I know the banks are trying to avoid it, but it's not saying you're against um, the things that the CFPB is doing is another layer uh, because we're already an overregulated industry from my perspective. And I think, it, it, you know, to make sure that all the regulatory um, agencies, as well as the advocacy agencies, are aligned on what this is supposed to be done, and nobody can just develop these things on their own. And I, you know, again, it, it's one of those strange things that um, the concept is right, the implementation could be probably done better. So I'm going to get, I'm not going to ask you to respond to that. I think that's my perspective more than anything else. Um, so moving on to another interesting subject that obviously was not even discussed uh, five years ago with the CBA, is the future of stablecoin and crypto regulation. Um, the government's coming out with more and more documents around what their position is on stablecoin and crypto. And, and there's probably less um, role or the financial institutions are probably delving into crypto a little bit less than they were thinking they were going to do six months ago because of the marketplace itself. But how do you see the government role within the whole stablecoin and crypto regulations? Well, look, I mean, there's no doubt policymakers are paying attention to all digital assets right now, from crypto to stablecoin to central bank digital currencies. And you see a whole lot of regulatory and congressional focus and study on these issues. But to your point, you don't see any real concrete action. And I think that that, ha that does have to do with what we've seen over the summer uh, in the crypto market. On stablecoin, you know, we've seen the president's recent executive order. We've actually seen um, draft bipartisan legislation in the House Financial Services Committee that would really kind of provide some regulatory framework for stablecoins. 
I've got a lot to say about, uh, and a lot of questions more generally about crypto, but specific to stablecoin, I think the question is, what issue are we trying to solve? You know, we largely have a digital dollar today that's highly safe, highly reliable, highly competitive, highly regulated. And, you know, I think if, um, you know, if there were a number of different considerations that I was thinking of for policymakers to want to pursue this, I think that they are probably think, uh, concerned about being behind, regulating from behind. So in the crypto market, yep. you saw a huge explosion of crypto and this notion of, well, we'll let it do its thing, you know, we'll let it grow and, and evolve on its own. And if it ever gets to that place where we need to step in, we'll try and step in. That is a really difficult place for policymakers to come, right? Because they are now at a complete disadvantage. Consumers can be harmed. Uh, the financial markets can be harmed. And so you really see them struggling with, you know, where would we even start? Is it SEC? Do we, right. like, oh, that's a you know, very is, good it, point. is it, is it a banking product or is it an investment product? Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, this whole notion of they don't want to get behind the curve on this. They want to be in front of it. And you see other countries working on stable coin. Um, I would, again, argue that the other countries that are entering into this market, whether it's central bank digital currency or, or other spaces, you know, they're, they do not have, they're nowhere close to where the U.S. is in financial competitive markets. They just aren't. And so I think that, you know, we, again, have to ask that question about why. You do, however, see other players in this market trying to figure it out as well. You see banks in this market, at least in the utility coin space. So you see JP Morgan coin um, or JPM coin and other coins being developed, and they're using them internally at their firms. Because, again, I think that folks are truly, truly trying to understand and uh, to consider how these different, uh, the utility of these different currencies, how, how can they be used? How could they be used in the future? You know, is there a way that we can lower the cost of foreign exchange currency? If, can we, you know, can we lower the cost of some of those exchanges? That would be a tremendous use for it. But there's other ways to get there than, you know, use of stablecoin in my view. And so we're waiting and watching and, you know, CBA has been, Part of these conversations, we're meeting with Treasury, we're meeting with others about, you know, the development of these and how they would be um, regulated. Who could offer stable coins is a big question. I think you want it in the regulated space. You want banks who, you know, and again, we can talk about segregation of these assets and other things, but you, I think you want it in a highly regulated space if you're going to offer stable coins. Um, so all those conversations are happening and CBA is part of them. But I think that, again, we are in, in sort of the watch and, um, and learn mode, as I think everybody else is as well. We started the discussion today around um, looking at what how the CBA's role really changes over time because it you have different issues that come to the forefront at different times based on market conditions. So what do you see as the CBA's largest role in the next 12 months and then maybe in the next 36 months? Oh, those are good questions. Um, look, I think in the next 12 months, there are probably two things that we'll be really focused on. One is, you know, just this next chapter of banking generally. And, and literally, I think that we're kind of standing on the precipice of something that is very exciting for banking. From a regulatory and a legislative perspective, you know, we're turning the page to the next chapter. Again, we're 15 years after the financial crisis. Uh, there's been no other industry with the compliance and the regulatory, um, you know, regime that banking 
that the banking industry has. And, you know, the banks are out there and they are meeting the needs of their, their, uh, their communities. They've led through the pandemic. Now they're going to be really focused on what's ahead for consumers and for small businesses coming out of this next economic cycle. And so for the next, I would say, 12 months in particular, the CBA is really going to be communicating between policymakers and between our members what we're seeing on the ground and what is the, what the impact of inflation and you know all the incredible costs that small businesses and consumers are absorbing right now what the implications of that are going to be uh, you know for their futures and what else they may need going forward whether that's small dollar lending whether those are you know uh, more small business loans and what that looks like so that's going to be a significant focus for us for over the next 12 months is making sure our members are at the forefront of that conversation uh, and able to do what they need to do in their communities to serve their, their customers' needs. I think over the next 36 months, we're really going to be part of this conversation that we've had today, Jim, about the next, you know, the future of banking and what does that look like? And we there's so much happening in the in so much conversation around, you know, the future of digital currency and the future of digital banking. And what does branch banking look like going forward? And so we are going to be navigating that environment with our members and at the same time, making sure that they've got the regulatory and the operating environment to do what they need to do in their communities today. So, um, you know, it's going to be a really interesting uh, 36 months, I can assure you, because you see all this technology and all this evolution happening in the marketplace. And our members are going to be at the forefront because uh, you know, the bigger banks are going to be able to to really lead the way, I think, in this space. So a, a lot of exciting time. Um, and we're, you know, again, excited to be part of it and part of the intersection between the regulatory and the policy discussions and the banks. So this is a question that um, I'm asking you and you're the first person I've asked this of in the way I'm asking it, but I'm going to probably ask it of my guests from here on out. But I know you just started as a leader of the CBA, but if you look in the future and then look backwards, how do you how would you like to define your legacy as leader of the CBA during your tenure? That's a great question. Um, you know, look, when you step into a new role and you're thinking about that same question, and i'm I'm stepping into a role of Richard Hunt, the previous CEO of CBA, someone who really kind of had a legacy that he had built in building this organization. And I, I can tell you that when we think about legacy, it's going to be tied back to our outstanding team and our members. And so whatever, you know, wherever those folks are and what they're doing, that's how my legacy is going to be shaped. And so I'm really focused on working with our, our team and with our members to, again, kind of turn that next page and ensure that we can continue to finance uh, the dreams and needs of consumers and small businesses. And I think, you know, if our banks are doing really well, and they will be doing really well, you know, that's going to uh, to really shape the legacy of, of me. It's going to go far, outshine my legacy by far. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that's the legacy that I'm leaving is, you know, the industry is on really solid footing. We've turned the page. We've got a great story to tell. And so we're excited to go out and tell it. Well, it's interesting because I, I built that question thinking of Richard and saying, you know, I'm sure he was with the organization forever. Um, and I'm sure that he, if he was asked that question at the beginning of his tenure, he couldn't have even imagined what his legacy would have been today 
based on where he was then, because the the banking world and everything else changed so quickly. And and actually, his legacy is probably defined by the last three years of his uh, tenure rather than the previous several years before that. And and it's an interesting dynamic. And and you know, I it's been a a real pleasure speaking with you. Um, the, obviously, the CBA is in tremendous hands. As I said before, we talk, we went on the air. Yes, you have big shoes to fill, but I don't think I'd want to, you know, try to fit into another pair of boots. So, uh, you know, it, we we stayed south. You know, we I'm sure anybody from Texas can handle anything that the uh, the Cajun banker can handle. But uh, congratulations on your new appointment, and and more importantly, um, I'm looking forward to seeing how the CBA really transforms its own legacy as we move into a completely different realm of banking. So thank you very much. Thanks again, Jim. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to give our show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research you're doing on the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Hathledge, audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Bruce. Until next time, remember, change will continue to occur, but it's how you respond to that change that will define your future. We'd never admit it, but deep down, we all get at least some pleasure from bad things happening to somebody we don't like. History's full of stories about bitter enemies being mutually horrible. Usually nothing good comes of it. But sometimes, sometimes, you get soul singers James Brown and Joe Tex, or 17th century nun Sor Juana, and the entire Catholic Church duking it out and dramatically changing our world. On Beef with Bridget Todd, we tell the stories of those petty feuds behind some of the greatest art, innovation, and global events. Listen to Beef wherever you get your podcasts.